chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Well, that was quite something. Thank you to our creative team for uh, putting that um, reading together, uh, including David Suchet, an important part of the creative team here at Metro, um, particularly over the last few weeks. Uh, my name's Matt, if you don't know me. Uh, it's great to be here with people. Um, hello, people. Hello. It's so nice to see you. Uh, it's been nice to worship with people, even though we can't all sing together. It's just powerful to, to be doing this again. And it's great to know that down the other side of that camera, uh, there's pop-ups, there's people in their living rooms. Um, it's just really exciting. I'm really happy to be here. And um, I'm really happy to be closing out this series on Jesus by John as well, um, especially
especially because Philip asked me a couple of months ago now to, to kind of design the, the brief for this series. And so I've just really been living in John for the last couple of months, thinking about what are the real themes, um, what are the key ideas that John wants to communicate about the life of Jesus. And um, very early on, I had this idea of looking at the Gospel of John in this kind of extended film metaphor, which is ridiculous because I know absolutely nothing about films. I'm the, the kind of person, I went to see the last Quentin Tarantino film, um, the one about Hollywood, and I thought it was, it was good. And when people asked me what I thought of it, I kind of said, I'm pretty sure it's one of the best films that I've ever seen, but... That's not because I thought it was one of the best films I've ever seen. It's just I know that's what I meant to say. And I'm sure there was a bunch of like really clever stuff that was happening that if I knew things about film, I would have got kind of inside jokes, allusions to other films, that sort of stuff. But it just went completely over my head. Or on the other side of the, the scale, I'm the kind of person who I thought that Suicide Squad was a, a good movie. I enjoyed it. I know that's objectively untrue because I've been told that. Uh, I've been educated, but I thought it was good. So I, anyway, I, I don't really do films, but uh, I'm going to double down on this film metaphor tonight because I think it's really helpful. And the particular film that I have in mind when I think of John's Gospel is the film Dunkirk. Uh, it came out a, a few years ago, and it was this kind of revolutionary war movie. Um, we had loads of war movies, but this one was a bit different because it told uh, the story of events at Dunkirk, and it had these overlapping storylines. There, there's one that takes place over a week, and one over a day, and a third one over an hour, and the director kind of bounces you between these different narratives. And they're all going on at the same time in these different timescales, and it's not until the end of the film that they all converge and come together, and, and it makes sense how they fit together and what was really going on, and it makes sense particularly when it comes to the victory at the Battle of Dunkirk or on the, on the beach of Dunkirk where there's this uh, successful rescue operation. Um, hopefully that's not too much of a spoiler. That should have been in your history lessons, if, uh, even if you haven't seen the, the film. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I've let it out now, so there we go. I think that this is like John's Gospel because he has all of these different themes. And so we've been trying to unpack that during this series, and the first thing that, that Sam introduced us to was the, the person of Jesus, who he was, and particularly the fact that we need to see him both as fully God and fully human for any of it to really make sense. And we need to make sure that we relate to him both as God and as a real man who experienced what it was like to live on this world and feel human feelings and all those kinds of things. And the second theme was uh, this theme that Philip told us about, which is the theme of life. There are these signs in John's gospel, which are all about the fact that Jesus was, was bringing us life, bringing us the fullness of life, and what that looks like. And Dave, last week, was talking about how uh, Jesus is the revelation of God's love, the love of God, 
actually walking and talking and touching people and, and being here on earth. And he's the best way that we see God's love because he's the embodiment of God's love. And tonight we've got one more theme that we can pick up on. There's a whole bunch of them in John's gospel. And you can go and hopefully you'll be able to chase some down yourselves. But it's the theme of light. The theme of light versus darkness. This kind of cosmic battle. We got a taster of it in Sam's talk, actually, in that great poem which opens John's gospel. It says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that theme runs all the way through the gospel. And just like at Dunkirk, the storylines make sense when they all converge, when the timelines meet up, when we get to the, the final moments of the film. John's gospel is like that. The themes all converge, and they all make sense when they come together. And the place that they come together is on the cross. It's with the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. That's where John's themes come together. And what those themes, these different themes we've been looking at in the series, when they come together, what it tells us, what John wants us to know is that Jesus wins. That's, that's kind of one of the big headlines of the gospel. It's one of the big claims of the church is that Jesus wins. And so we're going to focus on this, uh, this idea of the battle between light and darkness tonight and what it means that Jesus wins. And it's interesting because if you actually turn to John chapter 19 and you read about the cross where I've just claimed all these themes come together, uh, you might actually think it was a bit of an anticlimax. You probably wonder what I was talking about, how I can see all of these themes in the cross. Because actually, it can seem like they're not there. But just like someone who's making a war movie, John is writing knowing that his audience know the ending. His audience know that Jesus dies, and, and they know that he rises again, just like we know who wins the war. Occasionally, you, you get a, someone who comes along and they do kind of an alternative universe thing where the Nazis won and they kind of try and show what that might have looked like and it's fun. But 99% of the time, you know how the movie is going to end. And so they have to tell the story in a way that the significance of it isn't in what's going to happen at the end of the film. It's in how does it happen? Why does it happen? What was happening in that era that allowed all of this to happen? Why is it that one side were victorious over the other? And so John has done a very similar thing. And so if you look at the cross... It's kind of an anticlimax. It's almost like, um, you know, sometimes you get into a, a series on Netflix, you're like binging it, and then you get to season four, and you realize that when they got to season four, they realized that actually they completely run out of steam, they were going to lose money, and so rather than having like 20 episodes to end the series, the producers gave them like two, and they have to suddenly tie up all these loose ends, and it's all just a bit of a rush, and it's like they all lived happily ever after the end, and you're kind of a bit disappointed. I kind of feel like that when I read the end of John's gospel, especially when you compare it to the start. You compare it to like, he starts his story of Jesus by going all the way back to the creation of the universe. 
And then when it comes to the significant stuff at the end, uh, it's just quite matter of fact, especially compared with the other Gospels, where you expect John to be the most dramatic, the most epic, the most cinematic. Actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of outdo him on this one. You have Jesus saying a lot more stuff on the cross. There's kind of these touching moments with the, the criminals on the crosses either side of him. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's this eclipse where the whole sky goes black for like three hours. There's a cutaway scene of the, uh, the curtain in the temple which is torn uh, down the middle from top to bottom, completely torn in two, has all this meaning infused into it. There's this remarkable moment where the centurion, one of the bad guys who has executed Jesus, says, surely this man was the son of God. And John, he doesn't have any of that. Jesus says, uh, I think it's something like six words, and he dies, and someone comes and takes him down from a cross, and there's none of this dramatic, epic stuff going on. And the reason for that is that John has been telling us everything we needed to know about the cross in chapters 1 to 18. That's where the meaning is. And today is Palm Sunday. Don't know if you knew that. Easter's next week. The Sunday before Easter we call Palm Sunday. And it commemorates this event that David Suchet kindly narrated for us. It's this event that actually happens just a week before uh, the crucifixion, before Easter. And it's one of the important scenes that we have to understand in order to know what John thinks is happening when Jesus dies. And so uh, let's just recap it. Let's, let's read that little bit again. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, hence Palm Sunday, and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So that's Palm Sunday. We've got a whole Sunday dedicated to these kind of four verses. Um, it's mentioned in the, the other Gospels as well. And it's this moment where Jesus arrives at Jerusalem and it says that the disciples didn't get it. At the time, they had no idea what was happening. And it's only with hindsight that they kind of watched the, the movie again. And they're like, that's what was happening. And the basic claim is, it's a pretty outrageous claim, actually. It's that by entering Jerusalem, Jesus was making this claim that he was going into Jerusalem to become king. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. It's this claim that Jesus makes that by going to Jerusalem, he was doing it to become king. King of Israel. But more than that, king of the world, king of the whole cosmos, I think John would say. 
He makes this claim by going while the crowd are there shouting these things. They're shouting, Hosanna. They're shouting about the king of Israel, and and Jesus accepts it. But more than that, he he knows his Bible. He knows there's a verse in the Jewish scriptures which say that one day the king of Israel will return and he will, the true king will enter Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus, by going and finding this young donkey and riding on it over these palm leaves that the people have laid out as a kind of green carpet before him into the city, is making the very, very explicit claim that he is going to Jerusalem to become the king. And that is pretty dramatic for this, this prophet, this kind of Jewish rabbi, to claim that he is the king, and that's why he is there. And if you know what happens next, it can seem like that's actually quite an ironic claim, because what happens is Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and he's arrested, and he is tried, and he is convicted and beaten and flogged and executed. It doesn't seem like Jesus has become a king. It seems like this abject failure, like this guy who, who was just a pretender. He just said that he was becoming king, and he couldn't pull it off. But for John, that's absolutely not why he's telling the story. And it's not what Jesus was expecting to happen either. He wasn't expecting to go in and kind of walk up to a throne and put a crown on his head and sit there and everyone just be like, oh yeah, fair enough. We're going to go with this. That that wasn't what Jesus was expecting. Because he goes on and uh, a few verses later, Jesus is talking to to some of the guys there and, and it says, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. When Jesus says the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, that's that's one of the titles that he takes on himself. And he's saying that he is this grain of wheat. He's saying before he even goes, before he's arrested, before he's tried, before he's beaten, before he's killed, he says, at the same time as saying that he's going to Jerusalem to become king, he says that he's this grain of wheat which is going to die. It's just this, these two crazy claims to be making at the same time. But that's what Jesus says, and that's what Jesus does. And he's pulling on this, this theme of life, the theme that Philip was, was talking about, that by him dying, somehow, that means that there's going to be this sudden abundance of life. There's going to be more seeds, or a different uh, translation kind of says that um, the other wheat will be able to bear fruit. We'll be able to have the life that we were meant to have. And Jesus isn't kind of saying that he's going to do a a Marie Kondo kind of thing. It's not like if you follow what I've been doing, you'll have life in the sense that you'll have five tips to make your life better and you can do them and and everything's going to be kind of better than it was before. 
It's not a, a follow this example and your life will be better. It's, it's this claim that him dying changes something. That there's a, a cosmic shift that somehow happens in his death that makes life for the rest of us possible in a way that it wasn't before. And that's why Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And we'll read this, this last little bit again, the, the end of this passage, because Jesus explains this. He explains how he understands the cosmic shift that needs to happen. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Here's the important bit. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now is the time for the prince of this world to be driven out. Jesus is saying that there has been a pretender on the throne. That there has been an imposter. That he is becoming king. And that means this other prince is getting chucked out. That's what Jesus thinks is happening when he goes to die. And so for John, what happens when Jesus goes to Jerusalem is that he really does become king. But his coronation is a crucifixion. That by dying, it's when he dies that he becomes king. It's when he dies that the prince of the world is driven out. And this is the, the peak of this light versus darkness theme that John has been sowing into his gospel all the way through. Jesus, by dying, becomes king. Right at the start, I, I said about that, that verse in John 1, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That is, is meeting its realization for all of time here in, in the moment of the crucifixion. But um, one of my favorite translations of this, bio, this verse, it's, it's an older translation. It's kind of the King James Version. It's from a few hundred years ago. And normally it's, it's not particularly the best translation for us to go to. But I love it for this verse because it gets a sense that others don't really. But it is there. It's that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. It's fascinating that John... Even though he has this theme of light and darkness, he doesn't pick up on the, the fact that there was this eclipse when, when Jesus died on the cross. He doesn't mention the fact that the sky went dark, which seems strange when he's, he's been playing with this theme, uh, theme so much. I think if you asked John why he left that out, 
Why didn't you mention the darkness? He'd be like, history is written by the victors. And the darkness is not what won this encounter. Darkness thought it had won. It went dark for a few hours. You know what? The darkness had not understood it. It didn't understand that it had just been defeated, that Jesus was going to rise again as vindication of the fact that he had become king. That's what happens on the cross. So we don't need to mention the darkness because the darkness is beaten. What is darkness? We, we kind of know. We don't really like to talk about it. We, we don't like to talk about the idea that there are, are dark powers somehow, that there are dark forces. And it, it can be hard to work out quite what the Bible is saying because sometimes it talks about powers. Sometimes it's more of a personification. And I think that we like to pretend and, and kid ourselves sometimes that we don't have to worry that there's, there's any kind of dark force or dark power out there. That's just superstition. Like, bad things, the darkness in this world is just the result of some bad people doing some bad things. But I think if we come back to the idea of these war films and the reality that stands behind that, we have to face the fact that we're just kidding ourselves if we think that that is just because of a few bad people. The Second World War and the Holocaust do not happen because there are just some bad people in an otherwise good bunch. It happens because there are forces of darkness. Sure, the people at the top, the people pulling the strings were bad. They were rotten. They had evil ideas and evil plans. But for millions of people to get behind that, for millions of people to allow that to happen on their watch, for hundreds of thousands of people to be given guns by these bad people and say, yeah, I'll go and do your bidding, that doesn't just happen because there's a few bad people. That happens because there are powers and forces of darkness that are a reality. That misinformation is, has a power, propaganda. The fact that we can objectify other people and we can convince ourselves that they are somehow worth less. That they are, are somehow inferior to us. That stands behind so much of the atrocity that was seen in our world in the Second World War. But you know what? It, it stands behind so much of the atrocity that we perpetuate as well. So many of the structures that we fail to challenge. So many of the horrific things that still happen in this world. And why? Because it's shrouded in darkness. And so we can, we can pretend that we don't see it. And sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes it's so dark that we just can't see what is going on. But Jesus says that he has defeated it. He has won a victory over all of that. And that is a belief that we hold. That is the conviction of the church and the people of God. That is what we, we say. 
that Jesus has really defeated and overcome darkness and evil. So why is it still dark in the world? If Jesus did that kind of 2,000 years ago, why am I talking about atrocities happening in the present day, happening less than 100 years ago? How does that all fit together? Surely Jesus was wrong and, and darkness hasn't actually been defeated because we still see it, right? I'm going to squeeze one more drop out of this movie metaphor and then we can, we can go. And it's not really a movie metaphor. It's, it's, it's to do with the war. And maybe you've heard this before, but it's, it's really powerful. It's really true. And sometimes we say that Easter is like D-Day. It's the day that we can point to and say the war was won, that it was decisively uh, changed, that the, the tide of battle had completely swung, and it was from that point onwards fixed as to who was going to win. But the war didn't actually end until VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. There were still months of battles and skirmishes, and a bit of resistance kicked up that we still had to get through before the war was actually over. And so if Easter is D-Day, we're still waiting for VE Day. We're still waiting for Jesus to return and to completely um, bring about the, the rewards of the victory that he's won, to bring true, lasting peace forever to completely get rid of death, to completely get rid of evil. We're still waiting for that. But that doesn't mean the victory is any less real or any less won. We can look to that with confidence and know that that is going to happen because Jesus rose again. And that is vindication that he really did become king. He really did defeat darkness. And John has, uh, has one other particular bit. It's a bit earlier in the gospel, actually, but Jesus leaves this, this for his disciples to go on and, and share, and they've shared it down the generations, and we still have this encouragement from Jesus. He says, um, the, John says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's dark out there sometimes. There's still darkness. There's still skirmishes and a bit of resistance from the defeated enemy. But Jesus says we don't ever have to walk in darkness. The light shines in the darkness, so the darkness has not overcome it. If we follow Jesus, we have the light of life. And that's what we're all about here. That's why we think it's so important that people find Jesus and love one another and follow Jesus and then serve the city. Because we get to have the light of life and we get to share the light of life. I think if you asked John, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I think he'd, he'd probably rephrase your question slightly. 
You might remember from Sam's talk in the first week that one of the important kind of ways that John talks about Jesus is as the word of God. I think that John would say, how do you follow the word? Well, you live by the word. And we have the word of God in, in our Bibles. And so I think that for John particularly, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to have the light of life and not walk in darkness, then the best place to start is to keep reading the Bible. Go and read the rest of John. We've only been able to touch on a few things in this series, but I hope you see that there's a, a big message there that it's not just that we've got four different people who wrote pretty much the same thing about Jesus. There are four people painting these incredible pictures, weaving these incredible tapestries that are just full of truth and goodness and light. So uh, our big idea for today is that Jesus has won victory over darkness and we can walk in his light until darkness is gone for good. Amen. We're going to... Um, worship some more. We're going to have a, another song from the band. So if the band come up, um, I just want to, just want to pray for us. Um, so if you're, if you're able to in the studio, if you want to stand in the pop-ups, um, perhaps at home, you, you might want to stand as well, stretch off uh, from sitting down. If you feel comfortable, maybe let's just put our hands out and invite God and just take a moment of stillness. Come, Holy Spirit. God, we are so grateful for the revelation of life and love and light that we find in Jesus. We are so grateful that the words of John's gospel have been preserved down the generations, that we can draw from them, that we can live by them. I pray that as we, um, as we reflect on this series, that you would just draw our attention to things that each one of us needs to hear from. Each one of us needs to just spend a bit more time with. We're so grateful, God, for these words. And we're so grateful for your love. There's one verse in, in John's gospel that I've just become absolutely obsessed with over the last couple of months. It's John 13.1, and um, it's John's kind of summary at, at, the turn, at the turn of the events of the gospel. As Jesus goes from this life of ministry, the moment that he turns towards his death, the moment he, he stops evading arrest and he hands himself over, he goes for it, it says... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you know that Jesus loved you to the end? How powerful is that? How powerful is that? Amen. Amen.